the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I had promised earlier this week that we would be talking with Mark Paoletta. He's the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. Sadly, once again, he's not able to join us. We'll reschedule and let you know when that is coming up. But we do have conversations planned with Katie Tubb. She is a research fellow for energy and environmental issues. We're going to be talking about the Supreme Court decision in West Virginia versus the EPA. Undoubtedly, one of the most consequential environmental cases taken up by the Supreme Court this term. We'll also speak with Lori Reese. She's the director of the Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Supreme Court's decision to let uh, stand President Biden's de facto open border policy by allowing, they didn't actually um, decide on the merits of the case, but because of an ambiguous word in the uh, uh, in the uh, the law, the policy may instead of shall, um, they said the president can in fact jettison the, the remain in Mexico policy. We'll talk more about the details on that. Uh, those are both coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll also take a look at the summer solstice and what that says about God's grace. And in the midst of a challenging season, we all find ourselves in locally and nationally. It's good to be reminded who the sovereign Lord of the universe actually is. A lot of folks think they're it, but not so much. We'll get into that later in the second hour as well. Well, Katanji Brown Jackson is officially the newest Supreme Court justice. Stephen Breyer, who formally resigned, administered the judicial oath to the new um, associate justice, taking her oath at a swearing in ceremony. Actually, it's swearing in, not swearing in ceremony on Thursday. Justice Jackson is now the first black woman on the high court. She was sworn in a few minutes after noon, which was when the retirement of her predecessor, Justice Stephen Breyer, became effective. Breyer himself helped lead the ceremony, which took place in the court's West Conference Room. Uh, Breyer's administered uh, the judicial oath. And Chief Justice John Roberts administered the constitutional oath, both of which are required for all justices. Jackson's husband, Patrick Jackson, and their two daughters were in attendance. It was no doubt a proud moment for the family. Now, on behalf of all the members of the court, I'm pleased to welcome Justice Jackson to the court and to our common calling, Robert said, upon completion of the ceremony. Roberts announced that a formal investiture ceremony, the customary special sitting of the Supreme Court, will occur in the fall. President Biden nominated uh, now Associate Justice Jackson to be Breyer's replacement after the justice declared in January that he intended to retire from active service upon the end of the court's term. That term came to a close less than two hours before his retirement became official and uh, Associate Justice Jackson was sworn in when the court released its last two opinions of the term. West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency and Biden versus Texas, both of which we'll discuss in some detail later in the program. The selection of Jackson 
Jackson fulfilled the president's promise to choose a black woman. The president decided on Jackson uh, in late February and the Senate confirmed her in early April with a vote of 53 to 47. Well, the Supreme Court ended its term uh, until October when they resume. And uh, the identity of the individual who leaked the high court's Roe versus Wade draft opinion still remains a mystery. Chief Justice John Roberts uh, today announced that the court has acted upon all cases submitted to the court for decision this term and will be uh, in recess from Thursday until the first Monday in October. On behalf of all justices, I would like to thank the Supreme Court employees for their outstanding work and dedication to their important responsibilities this term. I thank the members of the court, uh, the court's bar as well, for their professionalism and cooperation. When the high court returns from its recess in October, newly sworn in Justice Katandi Brown Jackson will take retired Justice Stephen Breyer's seat on the bench. The conclusion of the term comes less than a week after the Supreme Court delivered its decision to overturn the 1973 landmark case Roe versus Wade, bringing the issue of abortion back to the states for the first time in nearly 50 years. A majority draft opinion reflecting that the court would, in fact, overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked in May and first reported by Politico. The court at the time acknowledged that a copy of a draft opinion in a pending case was made public, but stressed that it did not represent a decision by the court or the final position of any member of the on the issue of the case. Roberts at the time said that the court would not be affected in any way by the leak, but called it a singular egregious breach of trust. That is an affront to the court and the community of public servants who work here. Uh, the chief justice then directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak that thus far has not presented a suspect in the case. Meanwhile, the post millennial has exclusively reported that anarchists and Antifa have attacked the first image pregnancy center here in Portland. They also vandalized Hinson Memorial Baptist Church and while independent journalist Chelly um, was uh, documenting the event, they attacked her as well, threw things at her and damaged the phone she was using to make that report. So more Oregon attacks, pregnancy resource centers, a church and a journalist being the subject of that um, of that violence. Well, the office of New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, demanded in a Tuesday letter that Google exclude crisis pregnancy centers from search results about abortion. A search through Google Maps seeking abortion and a location will provide a local listing of both those health care providers who offer abortion services and organizations that do not provide abortion care. You can put those two words together, abortion and care. Uh, James uh, claimed that Google had been previously uh, informed about inclusion of crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy resource centers, as they're more commonly called, and demanded the company address what she called misinformation. Indeed, those latter organizations known as crisis pregnancy centers are not health care providers, although many are, will not provide abortion or count, uh, abortion counseling or abortion referrals. Some do, by the way, the letter said CPCs exist solely to intercept and dissuade pregnant people from make pregnant people, mind you. Uh, from making fully informed decisions about their health care, such as the choice to obtain an abortion. Well, the New York Attorney General's office and Alphabet, uh, Google's parent company, didn't immediately respond to the request for a comment. But we'll continue to follow the story to see what they decide ultimately to do 
in response. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. A response from the executive director of Oregon Right to Life on the besmirched reputation and name of pregnancy resource centers. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the second hour, we'll talk about the two uh, Supreme Court decisions released yesterday and one today, closing out this term of the U.S. Supreme Court until the first Monday in October. While we were talking just before the break about the pregnancy resource centers and how their reputations are being uh, besmirched, and that's deliberately done, misunderstood in many cases, um, and I received an email earlier today from Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life, coming to their defense. And she writes, I'm still in shock over this incredible victory. I'm thinking of all the mothers and babies who will be saved from the violence of abortion. As we expected, though, there are many mixed opinions, emotional responses and pro-choice arguments coming from the media and even friends and family. I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but the pro-life uh, movement is not anti-woman. In fact, the pro-life movement has been the one. Uh, encouraging mothers and their babies while providing tangible support before and after pregnancy. Still, you'll probably encounter people making these claims. When you do, tell them this. The pro-life movement cares for both mothers and babies. There are over 2,700 pregnancy resource centers in the United States. We have a strong network of PRCs throughout Oregon and Washington that provide compassion and care to women facing unsupported pregnancies. Most PRCs offer a variety of services from medical to material support, including pregnancy testing, ultrasounds, mentoring, parenting classes, diapers, baby clothes, car seats, and more. Their clients can often receive support for years after birth from the PRC itself or um, partnering organizations. You can find more about your local pregnancy resource center, and I would encourage you to do just that. Pro-life is pro-woman. The pro-life movement stands with women by offering a better solution than ending a human life, because everyone deserves an advocate. So just putting that uh, opposition into a bit of perspective. Well, speaking from the NATO summit in Madrid on Thursday, President Joe Biden condemned the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade and called for an exception to the Senate filibuster to codify the federal right to abortion. Now, before moving forward, it's inappropriate for the president to denigrate uh, a branch of the U.S. government, um, the judicial branch on a foreign soil. But nonetheless, um, he did. He went on to say we have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law, and the way to do that is to make sure that Congress votes to do that. He said in response to a question from a Wall Street Journal reporter, he called the Supreme Court ruling outrageous and insisted that an exception to the filibuster is warranted to ensure the passage of legislation protecting unrestricted abortion access. The president then claimed the court's decision presents a problem for privacy in the U.S. more broadly and called for voters to cast their ballots in November for pro-abortion candidates, again on foreign soil. I think it's a serious, serious problem that the court has thrust upon the United States, a problem of Remanding the decision-making back to the people is now a, a serious problem. But in terms of the right to who you can marry and the whole range of issues related to privacy, which, of course, were not a matter in the case, the president said, adding that he will do everything he can to codify a federal right to abortion through Congress. Vote, show up and vote, vote in your off year and vote, vote, vote. That's how we'll change the court's decision. Again, a political response on foreign soil that was critical of the judicial branch of the uh, federal government. Back here at home, have at it. On foreign soil, a bad idea. In fact, if Trump had done it, uh, they'd still be talking about it today. 
Well, the Supreme Court dealt a significant blow to the Biden administration's climate change agenda. We'll talk more about that later in the second hour. But they ruled today that the Environmental Protection Agency cannot pass sweeping regulations that could overhaul entire industries without additional congressional approval. The 6-3 decision limits how far the executive branch can go in forcing new environmental regulations on its own. This is the the, uh, responsibility of Congress. Capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day, but it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme in Section 111D. Chief Justice John Roberts said in the court's opinion, referencing Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, a decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. Now, Congress now has the uh, the uh, opportunity to delegate that responsibility, but they have to do so legislatively. They can't just uh, the administration can't just cede that to a regulatory agency, the administrative state. So Congress still has the freedom to do that if they so choose, but it cannot, under the current law, um, allow the administrative agency to do that. The case stemmed from the the Obama administration's 2015 Clean Power Plan. It aimed to reduce carbon emissions at power plants by pushing a shift from coal to natural gas and ultimately to wind and solar energy. Now, the plan was put on hold by the Supreme Court in 2016 and then repealed by the Trump administration and replaced by the less extreme affordable clean energy rule. They didn't um, decide on the merits of the plan the president was putting forward, but suggested that the EPA does not have the authority to implement a plan without congressional directives. Also, the Supreme Court um, ruled that the Biden administration has the authority to reverse the Trump administration's remain in Mexico policy. We'll talk more about that in our second hour as well. The decision was 5-4 in Biden versus Texas, authored by Chief Justice John Roberts. He was joined by Justices Brett Kavanaugh, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan. The majority held that the Biden administration has not violated the immigration and Nationality Act, and that memoranda issued by the Department of Homeland Security in October repealing the policy represented final agency action. The court has sent the case back to district court with instructions to consider in the first instance whether the October 29th memoranda comply with the section of the APA, which I won't go into. Well, since coming into office, President Biden's uh, Homeland Security Department has twice sought to rescind the migrant protection protocols, which require certain non-citizens who arrive at the southern border to stay in Mexico while their asylum cases are processed. Well, Texas and Missouri both challenged that federal policy reversal, arguing that it was unlawful under both federal immigration law and the Administrative Procedure Act. Now, again, the Supreme Court did not uh, rule on the merits of the case, whether or not remain in Mexico was a good idea, but that the language in the in the policy was may rather than shall. And so it was a semantic, uh, largely a semantic um, word that uh, that the decision rested on. And again, we'll talk more fully about that in the second hour of today's program. Meanwhile, Justice Samuel Alito said that by refusing to enforce the remain in Mexico policy, the Biden administration was clearly flouting a federal law that requires migrants to be detained or deported 
and not released. Well, he made the comments in the dissenting opinion in the Supreme Court case, Biden versus Texas, in which the court ruled in favor of the administration. Chief Justice John Roberts, joined the, uh, by Justice uh, Kavanaugh and the court's three liberal members, cleared the way for the president to finally end Remain in Mexico after more than a year of trying. When it appears that one of these aliens is not admissible, may the government simply uh, release the alien in this country and hope that the alien will show up for the hearing at which he, uh, his or her entitlement to remain will be decided. Congress has provided a clear answer to that question, and the answer is no, he continued. Again, this is the dissenting opinion. By law, if an alien is not clearly and beyond a doubt entitled to be admitted, the alien shall be detained for a removal proceeding. Well, the administration is also opposed to detaining uh, individuals, which the law requires. So, again, there's a, a bit of a conflict there as well. A bit closer to home, LIV Golf's first U.S. event is set to begin. Well, it did begin earlier today. And a group of survivors and families who lost loved ones in the September 11th terror attacks gathered this morning at a nearby park to speak out against the Saudi Arabia funded tour. The LIV Golf Invitational will be uh, or was held is being held at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Course, about 20 miles west of downtown Portland. It started this morning at Pumpkin Ridge. Well, Brett Eagleson was 15 years old when he lost his father in the collapse of the World Trade Center. Nearly 3,000 people were killed on that day in 2001. We want the golfers to know who they're getting in bed with, who they're doing business with, he said. Any golfer who chooses to go play for the LIV tournament should have to listen to the family members and look us in the eye and explain to us why they're taking the Saudi money and why they're playing in this tournament. And we want the ability to educate the golfers on what we know about the Saudi role in 9-11. He's now 36 years old, is among those criticizing the tournament and its connection to a regime that is flouted, has flouted human rights. All but four of the 19 hijackers on September 11th were Saudi citizens and the Saudi kingdom was the birthplace of Osama bin Laden, the head of Al Qaeda and mastermind of the attack. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll return and continue our march through some of the day's headlines. And in the second hour, we'll talk with a couple of specialists on the two Supreme Court decisions, the final two decisions released today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the so-called American Rescue Plan is facing scrutiny after $825 million in funds went to oral historians researching anti-racism and Latinx history, which, by the way, is offensive to those who to whom it is supposed to be applied. Proving to be a safe haven, states with higher rates of gun ownership do not correlate with more gun murders, according to new data. Americans' trust in airlines is tested after flight cancellations and long delays affect their flying experiences. I have a recent experience of my own. The job not complete. After Supreme Court's abortion decision, conservatives are facing a new and even greater challenge, rebuilding American public institutions. Well, Maine Attorney General Aaron Fry was blasted for hitting the brakes on religious schools celebrations after the Supreme Court struck down a state law prohibiting them from receiving public funds. Fry released a statement following the court's initial ruling, sharing his disappointment and listing what he considered the ills of the religious institutions named in the lawsuits. Saying they deserved better, the Immigration Judges Union is sounding the alarm on the unprofessional ousting of Trump-era judges. 
Network standoff, MSNBC downplayed the NBC scoop on the Secret Service denying the Trump SUV story from Cassidy Hutchinson. That very compelling testimony that's now being called into question. In a contrived case of guns versus women, after the abortion ruling, media pundits and Hollywood figures declared guns have more rights than women. Which is, of course, absurd. Who to blame for Roe? Well, the Washington Post columnist writes, the fall of Roe should be blamed on the Democratic establishment. So Pelosi and Biden need to move aside. I'm having trouble following the logic here, but that's a direct quote. A total flight mare. Thousands of flights canceled, delayed by staffing shortages, airline issues. Question, do you need travel insurance? Well, it comes down to this money. Longtime PGA legend Curtis Strange says pros have jumped to the Saudi-backed LIV golf tournament because it's all about the money. Finland and Sweden, they've been officially invited to join NATO. They will need a unanimous vote from current members. NATO has now officially invited the pair to join the alliance, a sign of just how dramatically the Kremlin's war has upended the previous military landscape in Europe. Earlier in the day, at the start of a summit in Madrid, President Joe Biden announced an increased U.S. military presence in Europe, headlined by the first permanent American forces on NATO's eastern flank and more rotating troops in the the Baltic states. The Western alliance also called Russia its most significant and direct threat in a joint statement, a notable shift from its description of Moscow as a strategic partner just a decade ago. The insider reports that two countries need the unanimous support of all of NATO's current members to be able to join the alliance. Sweden and Finland moved away from decades of neutrality to pursue NATO membership after Russia invaded Ukraine. They both uh, first applied to join in May. The possible growth and apparent strengthening of NATO is the opposite of what Putin wanted. He's tried to justify his invasion of Ukraine by arguing that he was reacting to the possibility of NATO expanding eastward. But instead, he has prompted attempts to uh, at such an expansion. Justice Breyer plans to retire and did earlier today and was replaced by the new associate justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. The Supreme Court justice, the most senior member of the U.S. court, um, their liberal wing said that he will officially step down. Um, at noon on Thursday, relinquishing his duties as a justice and clearing the way for the swearing in of the nation's first black female justice. All of that took place earlier today. President Biden is sending 20,000 additional troops to Europe to counter Russian aggression. President Biden announced plans to bolster U.S. forces in Europe amid a persistent threat from Russia, saying the moves would help NATO fend off threats from all directions across every domain. Specifically, the president announced plans to permanently headquarter U.S. Army V Corps in Poland, add a rotational brigade in Europe stationed in Romania and increase rotational deployments to the Baltic states, moves that will bolster forces on NATO's eastern flank. President Biden also said that the U.S. would send two more F-35 squadrons to the United Kingdom and aid air defense and other capabilities in Germany and Italy. The president also highlighted plans to send two additional Navy destroyers to Spain, an announcement he made the day prior. The Daily Wire weighs in, pointing out that the move comes four months after the Russian invasion of Ukraine and occurs despite a 1997 agreement with Russia stating that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization would avoid the additional permanent stationing of substantial combat forces in the current and foreseeable security environment. Well, the current security environment, which has drastically changed over the last several months.
President Biden hit a new low in approval ratings on Wednesday. The president plunged to his all time low in the real clear politics average, sinking below 38 percent for the first time in his presidency. The president's plunge to his lowest point yet came five days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which Democrats have hoped would catalyze a resurgence of support for Democrats. Phil Kirpin weighs in, saying another day, another fresh all time low for the job approval rating. Under 38 percent for the first time. The California AG attorney general release of information on firearms owners resulted in a breach of private personal data. The Wall Street Journal reports that California attorney general Rob Bonta released a trove of data on firearms in America's most populous state to the public on Monday in what he said was an effort to improve transparency on the fraught topic. The next day, the Democrats office took down the online dashboard after discovering it had resulted in a data breach in which the personal information of the state's concealed carry weapons permit holders was also shared. Among the information that could be downloaded were the names, ages, addresses of gun permit holders. The attorney general's office said in a statement on Tuesday, it didn't disclose how many people may have been affected. Gun rights advocates quickly criticized the breach and said, It put legal gun ownerships and firearms in danger. The attorney general has put the lives of judges, prosecutors, domestic violence victims and everyday citizens at risk by relieving this releasing rather this sensitive confidential information that gives criminals a map to their homes. The president of the California Rifle and Pistol Association Advocacy Group said reload the. um, uh, organization received a copy of the Los Angeles County database and found 244 judge permits listed in that database. 85% of Americans believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. The Washington Post reports an overwhelming and growing majority of Americans say the U.S. is heading in the wrong direction, including nearly eight in 10 Democrats, according to a new poll that finds deep pessimism about the economy plaguing President Joe Biden. Eighty five percent of U.S. adults say the country is on the wrong track. Seventy nine percent describe the economy as poor, according to the new survey from the Associated Press. The findings suggest the president faces fundamental challenges as he tries to motivate voters to cast ballots for Democrats in November's midterm elections. Inflation has consistently eclipsed the healthy 3.6% unemployment rate as a focal point for Americans who are dealing with high gasoline and food prices, even among Democrats. 67% call economic conditions poor. Uh, The Associated Press says in an interview this month with the AP, Biden traced the decline in his popularity to increases in gas prices that began a year ago. He said that uh, prices shot up further when Russia invaded Ukraine. Democrats are proposing a transgender bill of rights. The Hill reports that a group of House Democrats on Tuesday announced they would move to codify federal protections for transgender people. The proposal dubbed the Transgender Bill of Rights would codify the Supreme Court's 2020 Bostock and Clayton County decision that protects employees against discrimination for being gay or transgender. The proposal would amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to explicitly include protections for gender identity and sex characteristics, expand access to gender-affirming care, and ban conversion therapy, which isn't actually a thing. It would also require the Attorney General to designate a liaison dedicated to overseeing enforcement of civil rights for transgender people and invest in community services to prevent 
uh, violence. The measure comes after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, which Democrats described as a move that stripped many of their constitutional rights to choose, warning that the court seems poised and willing to take on other issues, primarily based on comments made by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, suggesting the underpinnings of some of the decisions they're concerned about should be revisited. The FCC commissioner is asking tech companies to remove TikTok from their app stores. A leader of the U.S. Federal Communications Commission said he was uh, has asked Apple and Google to remove TikTok from their app stores over China-related data security concerns, mom and dad. The wildly popular short video app is owned by Chinese company ByteDance, which... Um, uh, which which faced U.S. scrutiny under President Donald Trump. Brendan Kerr, one of the FCC's commissioners, shared via Twitter a letter to Apple CEO Tim Cook and Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai. The letter pointed to reports and other developments that made TikTok non-compliant with two companies' app store policies. TikTok is not what it appears to be on the surface. rather, It's not an app for sharing funny videos or memes. That's the sheep's clothing, he said in the letter. At its core, TikTok functions as a sophisticated surveillance tool that harvests extensive amounts of personal and sensitive data. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Katie Tubb, Research Fellow for Energy and Environmental Issues on the Supreme Court's decision in West Virginia versus EPA announced earlier today. And Lori Reese, Director of Border Security and Immigration Center, will be talking about the Supreme Court's decision to let stand the president's de facto open border policy uh, and uh, denying the uh, previous administration's remain in Mexico policy. That's coming up in our second Hour. Just before the break, we were talking about TikTok, and I wanted to just share one more bit of news on that. Fox News points out that though it's already well known that TikTok collects vast troves of sensitive data from its U.S. users, Carr pointed to a new report by BuzzFeed News citing leaked recordings that revealed BitDance or ByteDance, I'm not sure which is the case, officials in Beijing have repeatedly accessed the data collected from Americans who downloaded TikTok from Apple and the Google App Stores. The revelation contradicts previous claims from TikTok that data collected from Americans uh, through the video app is stored on servers in the United States. Everything is seen in China, a TikTok official says in that recording. Something to think about. Again, mom and dad. Well, polling shows Americans do not support Supreme Court packing. Guy Benson says that Democrats are the party of norms and institutions. Just ask them. Throughout the Trump era, the post-January 6th, the progressives have presented themselves as virtual guardians of our nation's very system of government, valiantly beating back myriad pre- uh, predictions from uh, unscrupulous, power-hungry right-wingers. Well, the trouble is um, that when um, said system doesn't work in their favor, resulting in undesirable outcomes for the tribe, they shift seamlessly to demanding that these same norms and institutions be burned to the ground. But that's good institutional arson, you see, for a righteous cause. That's Uh, That's the mentality, whether it's uprooting the Electoral College, blowing up the filibuster and therefore the Senate, adding states to the union for brazenly political reasons or packing the Supreme Court. There isn't an institution in sight that seems to be spared their wrath. Polling has shown that the American people are opposed to packing the court, that that may or may not matter. By the way, USA reports, do you support or oppose expanding the court? Oppose 54 percent, support 34 percent. 
Not that large a margin, I will just point out. A Turkish drone manufacturer has declined a crowdfunding effort to, uh, for drones to Ukraine, but donates instead. The insider reports that the Turkish defense manufacturer Baykar said it turned down $20 million in crowdfunded cash to buy its drones for Ukraine and would donate three military drones to the country instead. They wrote in a Monday statement that it had learned about a campaign to raise funds to buy its uh, TB2 drones, adding Baycar will not accept payments for the TB2s and will send three UAVs free of charge to the Ukrainians' war front. We ask that the funds instead be remitted to the struggling people of Ukraine. The announcement uh, from the organization was, needless to say, met with great delight. Nikki Asia points out that this is not the first time Baycar has gifted drones in response to crowdfunding. Earlier in June, the company said it would send Lithuania a a TB2 free of charge after learning of a crowdfunding effort there to raise funds to buy the same for Ukraine. Lithuanians had collected almost 6 million euros, that's $6.3 million in three days to buy the the drone. Much of that ire of Russia, the company's first um, sold the TB2 to Ukraine in 2019 and later announced that it would be uh, that it would rather co-produce them in the country just before the war started. The TB2 has been instrumental in the fight against Russian forces, destroying a wide range of targets, including tanks, missile defense systems and Navy vessels. The EPA keeps throttling U.S. energy production. Despite Joe Biden's repeated claims to the contrary, the administration is doing everything it can to inhibit energy companies from increasing oil and gas extraction capabilities. The latest evidence is the Environmental Protection Agency announcement of a new ozone regulatory standard that has directed direct implications on energy companies' ability to extract oil from the Permian Basin. Located in Texas and New Mexico, the basin accounts for 43 percent of all U.S. oil production. And now the EPA has targeted parts of it for non-attainment with newly devised air quality standards. In truth, it's a backdoor approach to banning fracking, something the EPA is not permitted to do. Texas Governor Greg Abbott responded, the EPA's process could interfere in the production of oil in Texas, which could lead to skyrocketing prices at the pump by reducing production even further increase the cost of that production or do both your administration's announced action is completely discretionary thus you have the power to stop it end quote well if biden was uh, interested in helping americans by getting the sky high gas prices down he could eliminate onerous regulations instead he's following through on the promise to end fossil fuels despite the fact that we don't have a replacement in related uh, news the supreme court just limited the epa's authority in regulating emissions the vatican allowed pro-abortion catholic speaker pelosi to take communion the house speaker visited the the vatican this week took part in a papal mass where she was permitted to receive communion she's long championed abortion despite the catholic church's clear teaching that abortion is a grave sin she responded to the supreme court overturning of Roe by calling it cruel, outrageous, and heart-wrenching. She even claimed it was evidence of Republicans' raging hypocrisy. The only raging hypocrisy is claiming to be a good Catholic, according to her own bishop. Well, the Supreme Court dealt a major blow to EPA power. The Supreme Court has allowed President Biden to end the Trump era remain in Mexico policy, and they've ruled states can prosecute non-Native Americans on tribal lands. President Biden supports ending the filibuster to protect abortion access and two illegal immigrants have been arrested in connection with the death of more than 53 migrants. Well, the mob um, 
uh, loses a round. George Washington University will not fire Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, an adjunct professor at its law school amid left wing cries on the Internet for his termination after overturning Roe versus Wade. Well, not long after um, Al Qaeda terrorists flew commercial jets into the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Northern Virginia, Major League Baseball teams started playing God Bless America in the seventh inning of their games. So many of these games were played in stadiums owned by local governments. Well, did that establish religion in Boston? The municipal government concluded that allowing a private group camp constitution to temporarily lift its Christian flag on its city owned flagpole would suggest that the city has established a has established a religion and thus violating the First Amendment on the same flagpole. However, Boston itself raised the flag of the People's Republic of China. China, of course, is a communist atheist regime. Well, Camp Constitution, by contrast, is noted in a brief it submitted to the Supreme Court is an all volunteer association formed in 2009, offering classes and workshops on subjects such as U.S. history, the Constitution, current events and so on. Camp Constitution's mission is said to be said in brief to enhance understanding of the country's Judeo-Christian heritage, the American heritage of courage and ingenuity and genius of the United States Constitution and free enterprise. Well, the case that Camp Constitution and its founder brought before Boston for denying this organization the opportunity to fly its flag on the same pole where the People's Republic of China flag has flown went all the way to the Supreme Court. Last month, the court correctly ruled in favor of Camp Constitution and against Boston. In front of the Boston City Hall, there are three flagpoles. One, the group's brief explains, uh, file, uh, flies rather the American flag and the flag of the National League of uh, POW MIA families. Another flies a Massachusetts flag and the third usually flies Boston's municipal flag. The third pole, however, is also sometimes used by the city to fly other flags or is lent out by the city to non-government organizations to fly other flags. Well, in 2017, Camp Constitution planned on holding an event in the plaza outside the city hall and requested permission to fly the Christian flag. They were denied, but the Supreme Court has essentially reviewed, reversed the decision made by the city of Boston. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And uh, in the middle of the second hour, we'll talk with Katie Tubb, research fellow for energy environmental issues um, on the Supreme Court decision in West Virginia versus EPA. And Laura Reese, director of the Border Security and Immigration Center on the Supreme Court's decision to let President Biden's de facto open border policy continue by jettisoning the uh, previous administration's remain in Mexico policy. All of that and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we'll talk with Katie Tubb. Our subject will be West Virginia versus EPA, undoubtedly one of the most consequential environmental cases taken up by the Supreme Court this term. The decision announced earlier today. We'll also speak with Lori Rees, director of the Border Security and Immigration Center. Uh, We'll talk about the decision to let stand the president's de facto open border policy in getting rid of and not enforcing the stay in Mexico policy. We'll explain what the decisions were, the bit of the backstory and what happens next. That's coming up later in this hour of today's program. Well, a transgender skateboarder who's 29 is defending besting little girls in a competition. 
The age thing doesn't really count, he says. Well, the 29-year-old competed against four girls, all under 17, in a New York City skateboarding tournament. Now, the fact that he happens to be a military veteran and transgender seems only one of the issues. Why is a 29-year-old of any gender or sex competing against girls under 17? That's another question. But anyway, he has reacted to the revelations that... um, He competed and won in the competition. Well, his name is Ricky Trez, a 29-year-old, a biological male. He identifies as female. He defended competing against the children after coming under fire for besting teen girls in a recent skateboarding competition in New York City. He was the oldest uh, participant in the women's division of the the, uh, uh, Open, taking the tournament's top title along with a $500 prize. Second place, a 13-year-old, Shiloh Katori, a 13-year-old girl competitor finished runner-up. Now, she didn't get that $500 because she had to compete against a 29-year-old former veteran. Okay, transgender, that's added on there. I'm not going to go and be easy on them because they're kids, he said, uh, speaking to the Daily Mail on Tuesday, defending the win. Four of the six competitors in the tournament were tournament rather were under age 17. The youngest competitor was only 10 years old, came in fifth place. It's funny. It's what I'm uh, getting beat up over the most. People saying you're beating little girls, little girls, he says. I didn't intend to do that. This is the first time I've been uh, to first one I've been to and that actually wanted to win. The age thing doesn't really count. Well, it counts if you're 13 or you're 10. Well, they also said that skateboarding is more about determination and skill rather than physicality when claiming uh, he had no physical advantage over the other skaters. Well, he certainly had, you know, a decade or so over most of them. Look at me. I'm not buff or anything, he went on to say. And I don't think skateboarding has anything to do with physicality, especially uh, when you look at kids these days. Well, anyway, he's the father of three, a combat veteran who had previously rejected, been rejected by the U.S. Olympic team for having too much testosterone. He doesn't intend to medically transition outside the uh, of undergoing hormone therapy. So he couldn't compete in the Olympics as a woman because he had too much testosterone. But against teenagers and a 10 year old, that seemed to be OK. Well, the skateboarding competition, not to mention the fact that he's 29. The competition comes amid a national debate over whether biological males have a competitive advantage over biological females. In this case, absolutely. On the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the administration has indicated that it wants transgender athletes to enjoy the same protections that Title IX originally afforded women when it passed a half a century ago, which essentially nullifies the advantage that women were supposed to derive from Title IX. Well, the mob loses around George Washington University will not fire Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. He's an adjunct professor at its law school. There was some uh, cries on the Internet for his termination after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And in a bit of satire, not sapphire, satire, the J6 committee says Cassidy Hutchinson told them that she heard Mark Meadows say that a Secret Service agent's friend's cousin's husband once heard that one of Trump's other aides said she thinks she heard him say he wanted to do an insurrection. Okay. well, on this day in history, 1865, eight people, including Mary Surratt, and Dr. Samuel Mudd are convicted by a military commission of conspiring with John Wilkes Booth to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. Four defendants, including Surratt, are executed. Mudd is sentenced to life in prison, but pardoned by President Andrew Johnson in 19, or rather 1869, four years later. 1934, 
Adolf Hitler. He launched his blood purge of political and military rivals in Germany in what came to be known as the Night of the Long Knives. 1936, the Civil War novel Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell is first published by the Macmillan Company in New York. 1950, President Truman orders ground troops to Korea. 1953, the first Chevrolet Corvette with its innovative fiberglass body is built at a General Motors assembly facility in Flint, Michigan. 1963, Pope Paul VI is crowned the 262nd head of the Roman Catholic Church. 1966, the National Organization for Women is founded in Washington, D.C. 1971, the 26th Amendment, which lowers the voting age from 21 to 18, is ratified. 1971, the 26th Amendment, which lowers the voting age. I've mentioned that, but also in 1971, the Supreme Court rules six to three that the government could not prevent the New York Times or the Washington Post from publishing the Pentagon Papers. 1971, Soviet space mission ends in tragedy when three cosmonauts aboard Soyuz 11 are found dead of asphyxiation inside their capsule after it had returned to Earth. 1985, the 39 remaining hostages from hijacked TWA Flight 847 are freed in Beirut after 17 days. 1997, the British territory of Hong Kong is transferred to China. 2009, American soldier Bo Bergdahl vanishes from his base in eastern Afghanistan and is later confirmed to have been captured by insurgents. Bergdahl would be released on the 31st of May, 2014 in exchange for five Taliban detainees. And finally, on this day in history, President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un meet and shake hands at the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea in their first face-to-face meeting since an ill-fated summit in Hanoi, Vietnam that past February. Well, two years short of the target date of every NATO ally to devote at least 2% of its national GDP to defense, only nine of the 30 are currently doing so. But NATO Secretary General said Wednesday the number would rise to 19 by 2024. That's two years from now, by the way. Well, briefing reporters at the NATO summit in Madrid, Stoltenberg also said that beyond those 19, an additional five allies have uh, concrete commitments to meet the 2% benchmark thereafter. He said the leaders meeting in the Spanish capital had recommitted to the pledge and added that 2% of is increasingly seen as a floor, not as a ceiling. Well, when NATO leaders first agreed to the 2% target at a summit in Wales back in 2014, only three of the then 28 allies were spending 2% of GDP on defense, the United States, Britain and Greece. Two years later, they were joined by Estonia and Poland. Six years on, the membership now at 30, those initial five have been joined by Croatia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Slovakia for a a total of nine, according to NATO. Well, those lagging furthest behind among the most prominent allies include Spain, the summit host, Belgium, Turkey, and Canada. Turkey is the one ally not meeting the target whose defense spending as a percentage of GDP is actually lower in 2022 than it was in 2014 at 1.22% down from 1.45% some eight years ago. France and Germany, NATO's top uh, European economies, are at 1.9 and 1.44% respectively. Days after Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced that Germany will... From now on, year after year, invest more than 2% of gross domestic product 
in defense. I will see if that actually happens. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Katie Tubb. Our subject, West Virginia versus EPA and the Supreme Court's decision at the end of their term. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, on Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court made another consequential ruling that caused leftists to melt down on social media. The court dealt the progressives and climate change agenda a blow with its highly anticipated decision in the West Virginia versus EPA case. Well, the case questions the constitutionality of a provision that gives the EPA broad power to regulate, well, almost any part of the economy that produces greenhouse gases. The court's decision has implications for the administration's intended regulation of greenhouse gas emissions from power plants and beyond uh, to what you and I pay for energy. Well, here to talk with us about all of that is uh, Katie Tubb. She's a research fellow for energy and environmental issues at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, this was a really a major consequential decision because it does have um, far-reaching implications. And I know you wrote on the subject uh, for the Heritage Foundation. There were four consolidated cases challenging the EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Give us a little bit of the background. Right. So this all started with uh, the 2015 Clean Power Plan under President Obama. Uh, it basically uh, was a cap-and-trade program put forward by the EPA uh, to try and reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector uh, in concert with President Obama's uh, commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. And basically what it did um, was create this framework such that eventually coal, coal-fired power, power plants would have to close and then natural gas plants and all of this driving towards uh, forcing states to adopt renewable electricity technologies. And all of this boils up to what the Supreme Court came out with today, which was, in summary, that the EPA does not have authority to do this under the Clean Air Act, particularly so because, well, I guess for two reasons. One, the Clean Air Act does not give the EPA this authority. They kind of invented it out of a very narrow provision of the Clean Air Act. And and secondly, uh, Congress on multiple occasions has rejected a similar uh, cap-and-trade program. And so uh, there's there's two layers of implications here. First, anyone who pays an electricity bill should be uh, breathing out a sigh of relief that the EPA cannot meddle in their uh, electricity bills unless Congress says so. And then the second layer which is probably the more impactful in the long-term sense, is that uh, the Supreme Court sent a very clear message both to the EPA and to any regulatory agency that you cannot come up with authority that Congress did not give you. And I think this will be very interesting over the years to come to see how that plays out in um, reining in the regulatory state and amplifying the voices of Americans through their representative government. Well, you know, Congress has found it rather convenient to allow these uh, the administrative state to make decisions that are politically unpopular, and they've abdicated their responsibility. Um, do you anticipate that uh, reading the, the Supreme Court's decision, Congress will take more seriously its responsibility? 
um, Congress and the executive branch and that we're we're going to see uh, them take back the power that was uh, given to them rather than ceded out to to others who are not accountable to the electorate. I certainly hope so. You know, I think, you know, I, I focused more on, you know, the message that the court is sending to regulatory agencies. But I, I exactly as you say, I hope Congress also hears the message that they need to uh, take back the reins as Americans elected e- officials in the federal government and that uh, they hold the steering wheel. Um, and that has both a legislative angle and an oversight angle when it comes to uh, checking regulatory agencies that are doing far more legislation by way of regulation than um, I think makes constitutional sense. Well, as mentioned a few moments ago, these cases arose out of more than a decade of legal, regulatory and congressional uh, turmoil over whether and how to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. In practical terms, what does the Supreme Court's decision mean um, with regard to the president's uh, uh, plan and future plans um, where regulators had taken on authority that has not been given to them? What, what's likely to change? Well, many on the left, even before the uh, opinion came out today, we're, we're trying to frame this um, situation as the court is either going to uphold or gut the president's ability to push a climate change agenda through the EPA. And uh, certainly that is one of the outcomes, you know, that the EPA cannot go rogue with um, authority that Congress did not give it to push a radical climate agenda by way of regulation. But in some sense, I think that's almost missing the point because uh, we could still very well have a radical climate agenda that matches President Biden's. But what the court is saying is that has to come through Congress. So Congress certainly could pass a cap and trade uh, law that then the EPA would uh, execute. But what's important is that that framework is coming from Americans' representatives, not from unelected bureaucrats. And so, you know, I think when the left decries this decision as, look, this is an activist court who's trying to be opposed to any kind of global warming action, to me, all that says is we're too lazy to do it the uh, right way, that is by through Congress, uh, and we want... um, unelected bureaucrats to sneak this into the system. Um, And that's just not a sustainable way to govern. And it's not the rules we've all agreed upon in the Constitution. I would agree that I think laziness plays a role, but I think it's also politically expedient to to um, remain remote from decisions that might be politically unpopular. I can maintain my position while at the same time, seeing to it that unpopular things are, are, are moving forward. And you're right. We need to hold individuals accountable for major decisions that have broad implications. Now, in the piece that you wrote on this subject, you make the point that the decision the Supreme Court makes uh, involves deeper constitutional questions about the separation of powers between Congress and the executive branch. Um, it could also have far-reaching implications for the ever-expanding reach of executive branch agencies if the Supreme Court sides against the EPA, which in this case uh, it has. Do you see this having broad impact beyond the EPA to other um, uh, branches, if you will, of the administrative state? I do. You know, I think it gets back to uh, what I was kind of saying earlier, is mm-hmm. that this is a um, a clear message from the Supreme Court, not just to the EPA, but to regulators in general, that you have to show 
your homework, basically. You have to show that Congress gave you this um, authority, um, this scope of mission. Um, and there are a number of situations where the Biden administration is using the regulatory bodies and tools to push, uh, I, I would say, mission creep or mission leaps um, in a number of places. And I think the Securities and Exchange Commission is a, a very good example right now with what they're trying to do with their uh, climate disclosure uh, regulation. So, you know, it'll be very interesting in the months and years to come now how this plays out as uh, states especially see what the Supreme Court decided and how they respond to um, what is executive overreach in a number of arenas. I'm hoping the general public will seek to understand the the meaning of this decision and its implications. I know that there's a lot of hysteria out there. Um, In fact, one headline read, Supreme Court now a threat to the planet. (laughs) So I'm hoping people go beyond the headlines to find out precisely what the Supreme Court decided and what the implications are, and that it's Congress's responsibility to make these kinds of far-reaching decisions. Are you optimistic uh, about the future in which Congress does, in fact, do what it's charged with doing? I am. You know, this this case could have gone either way. I think there were a lot of indications over the last several years that the court would come out uh, as they did with this decision. But to me, you know, no matter where someone is on the spectrum of where, you know, what they think about global warming and is this a crisis or is this not, to me, this is such a good decision because it empowers Americans through the representatives. Uh, and that is I think what every American wants is a system that's accountable and that follows the rules. And then those rules are enforced instead of uh, the goalposts constantly being changed. And so, you know, to me, this is a very good decision. I think it was well argued um, and it upholds the rule of law. Uh, And that to me is a long-term good direction, no matter where you are on the climate issue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate your insight. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me into the conversation. Again, Katie Tubb is a research fellow for energy and environmental issues at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Laura Reese. She's the director of Border Security and Immigration Center, also at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the justices and the uh, Remain in Mexico policy decision made, well, just made. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court has ruled and the Biden administration's appeal has succeeded. They had asked the court to let remain in Mexico the policy, well, fall. The appeal that um, seeks to end the policy that's essential to deterring fraudulent asylum claims by aliens was the crux of the issue. And the president had suspended enrollments in the protocols with a two sentence, three line memorandum that didn't offer a single explanation for doing so. The administration is adamant on releasing uh, releasing illegal immigrants into the country in spite of an ongoing immigration Policy. Now, the truth is, for the average American, it all makes very little sense. It's head scratching and puzzling. Well, to help us make sense of the uh, decision released by the U.S. Supreme Court in favor of the administration is Lori Reese. She is director of border security and immigration, uh, the Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me on. Well, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the arguments in Biden versus Texas. It was an appeal filed by the uh, the administrations, the Justice Department, to lo- to um, the lower courts who had ruled uh, in opposition to what the administration was asking for. Give us a bit of that backstory leading up to today's decision. Yeah, so the Biden administration has been adamant to end the Remain in Mexico uh, program. One, because it had President Trump's name associated with it. And two, uh, the administration has been trying to process as many illegal aliens into the United States as possible and labeled it as inhumane to keep them waiting in Mexico. Now, the left is also a uh, strong opponent of immigration detention. And yet the statute says that these illegal aliens are supposed to be detained, shall be detained. And the left and the administration like to argue, well, sorry, there aren't enough detention beds for us to detain all these aliens, when in fact they themselves are not using all the beds. They've gotten rid of family uh, detention centers. They're not asking Congress for as many resources, and yet they try to shift the blame to Congress for not giving them enough resources. It's a very disingenuous argument. Well, it is, and it seems more humane for them to remain elsewhere where they're free rather than break the law here uh, to allow them to go to the interior of the country where quite often we don't see or hear from them when their hearing actually um, uh, comes along. So this was a clear decision on the part of the administration to violate the law, it seems to me. Uh, Trace uh, uh, the the challenge that uh, Texas and others posted opposed rather against the administration um, releasing uh, migrants into the country awaiting their hearing dates, as opposed to remaining in Mexico. Right. So now all these people are released into the country, and many of them are coming through Texas. So Texas is the first state to face the brunt of this. And then these aliens disappear. Um, they find work. Uh, but many, there are a lot of uh, bad people and unknown people getting through uh, because so many are crossing illegally and the Border Patrol agents simply cannot keep up. We know of at least 800,000 gotaways, and uh, we know that serious criminals are, are getting through and that unknown and suspected terrorists are getting through. So, you know, property owners along the Texas border are having their property destroyed, cattle harmed, um, facing regular crimes. There's a lot of car chases where smugglers are trying to flee uh, law enforcement and, and resulting in serious crashes and deaths. We've just had two in the past two days. Um, so it's, it's a very dangerous um, area down there. And this is spreading throughout the U.S. And so this administration has really created not just a public safety issue for Americans, but also a national security issue for Americans, let alone all the fentanyl that's coming across the border and killing our young Americans. We know that the Department of Homeland Security found that after the the former president's um, migrant protection protocols uh, were implemented, that total border encounters decreased by 64 percent. And aliens from the Northern Triangle, which is Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, they decreased 80 percent. Um, we've seen a reversal of that that has been really dramatic. Border Patrol is completely overwhelmed for a variety of reasons, this in- included. And the Supreme Court decided in favor of the administration. What was their 
reasoning. I mean, several lower courts sided with uh, with Texas and Missouri and others who uh, who challenged the president. What did the Supreme Court offer as a reason to support the administration in this effort? Well, the Supreme Court pointed to the statute that says remain in Mexico is discretionary because it says the secretary may um, have people wait in Mexico. Not It doesn't read shall. Uh, so that is something that Congress should consider, you know, changing that to a shall and making it mandatory. Um, the Supreme Court also said that it wasn't going to direct the executive branch to do certain foreign affairs. So it can't tell the executive branch, go negotiate with Mexico to arrange a new Remain in Mexico program, um, which and, and frankly, the government used that argument before the Supreme Court saying, you know, they shouldn't have to or be forced to go negotiate with Mexico. Well, that's specifically the job of the executive branch. So it seems like a cop-out argument, and yet the Supreme Court um, went with it. And then third, the court ruled that uh, the DHS can exercise parole. Um, but here I don't think the court uh, – I find this part of it very troubling because during the oral argument, uh, three justices, including Justice uh, Kagan, really probed the government saying you are not uh, following the intent of parole, which is supposed to be case-by-case basis, temporary for humanitarian purposes, and government, you seem to be issuing parole uh, for mass populations. Um, and, and yet then the court in its decision says DHS can exercise parole without stating that the government is violating the parole law. Is it fair to say, then, that the Supreme Court didn't rule on the merits of the case, but rather on the language of the statute? Well, the government can still use the Remain in Mexico program. The court did not say that it was an unlawful program, Um, but it just found that, um, you know, May is May. It's discretionary. And so it, it found uh, it ruled a bit on the merits. It ruled some on jurisdiction. Um, and it, it's a rather uh, fractured decision, to be sure. Uh, but we know that this administration is not going to use it. They've been trying to get rid of it since day one. Um, and, and they will do that, which leaves the border agents um, in even more dire straits to do their job and endangers even more Americans because smugglers can tell future illegal aliens, look, this program is gone, and now it'll be even easier for you to get into the U.S. Mm. So the president's uh, de facto open border policy stands, but Congress does have the authority to do something about that. With the midterm elections coming up shortly, this would certainly be an issue I would think uh, voters would think long and hard about in terms of what the future might look like on the southern border and whether or not the policy, which hasn't been uh, struck down, should be applied in future. Now, again, uh, elections have consequences. So one would hope that the American people would recognize this as one of the major issues that your ballot might, in fact, have an impact on. Would you agree? Yes, Congress should uh, make the Remain in Mexico program mandatory, should give a lot more funds to DHS to detain illegal aliens per the statute, uh, but also give ICE much more resources to uh, enforce the law and to uh, remove many more illegal aliens who right now are just disappearing into the interior under this administration. 
Well, we'll certainly uh, keep our eyes and ears poised on what happens next and certainly what happens following the upcoming election. Uh, Laura Reese, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your insight. Sure. Thank you for having me on. Again, Laura, Laura Reese is the director of Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today was a momentous day in which the Supreme Court ended its term. We have a new Supreme Court justice and Katanji Brown Jackson sworn in as a Supreme Court justice yesterday. A lot going on in the country, lots of division and vitriol and anger and frustration and rejoicing all at the same time. Uh, it is a season, I would imagine, for those of us who uh, who care, are praying for our nation, for our communities, for those with whom we have strong disagreements. First of all, that we would behave in a way that reflects the character of Christ with grace and mercy and patience, which can be very difficult when you're the subject of um, of hatred, um, but also that our country would somehow be able to come together again. It seems so unlikely these days that it's possible, but we can certainly pray that we would be instruments of his peace and his grace, even in this very difficult time. I was reading Christianity Today the other day, and I was struck by an article, the title of which was Summer Solstice Reminds Us of God's Grace to All. That's the context in which um, men rail against one another. Why it matters that the Lord lets the sun rise on both the evil and on the good. Hannah Anderson was the author, and she points out that last Tuesday, the sun hung in the sky over the northern hemisphere for what is colloquially known as the longest day of the year. In reality, the sun's position was no different than usual, but our perception of it was different owing to the Earth's tilt on its axis as it orbits the sun, which is in and of itself rather fascinating. Well, in the um, mid-Atlantic, they enjoyed over 14 hours of sunlight, but for those at the farthest reaches north in places like Like Norway, the sun simply never set. Folks in the southern hemisphere will enjoy that same phenomenon some six months later when the seasons change again. Well, traditionally, the summer solstice has been a time of celebration, bonfires and revelry, inspiring stories like Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, and even the placement of architectural wonders like Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid of Giza. For many pagan cultures, midsummer was a time of ritual and sacrifice as humans worshiped the sun itself as the source of life. But there's a difference between worshiping the sun and worshiping by the sun. And surprisingly, at least to our modern sensibility, Scripture invites us to do the latter. Psalm 19, the psalm that tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, calls attention to the sun's orbit as it traces a path across the sky. The author likens it to an athlete running around a racetrack. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. That's found in Psalm 19, verse 6. For the psalmist, the arc of the sun's orbit, the same orbit that makes the summer solstice both possible and predictable, reveals something of God's character. Elsewhere in Scripture, it alludes to the role of the sun's orbit in delineating signs and seasons. Genesis, the first chapter, verses 14 and 19, for example, while the consistent passage of the seasons tells of the faithfulness of God himself, as the Lord promises Noah after the flood, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, 
summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Genesis 8.22 Finding theological truth in natural phenomenon may feel odd to modern readers, and perhaps it might even smack of paganism, but this hermeneutic falls squarely within the tradition of natural theology and general revelation. The natural world is one of the primary ways that God has revealed himself to humanity since the beginning of time. And so, while we're more accustomed to knowing God through holy texts and prophetic utterances, saints throughout history have found him through his creation. In the early 13th century hymn, Canticle of the Sun, based on Psalm 104, St. Francis of Assisi worships God via the greatness of the Son. Most high, all-powerful, good Lord, yours are the praises, the glory, the honor, and all blessing. To you alone, most high, do they belong, and no man is worthy to mention your name. Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through my Lord, brother, son, who brings the day, and you give light through him, and he is beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. Of you, Most High, he bears the likeness. But general revelation also carries a kind of warning, reminding us of where we stand in relationship to our Creator. As much as we might minimize our helplessness or try to escape the uncomfortable truth of our dependence, the natural world has a way of snapping us back to reality. When Job's friends chide him for blaming God for his suffering, Job reminds them that even animals know their well-being rests in the hands of the Creator. Ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds of the sky, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you, which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, and His hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. We simply cannot escape the testimony of creation. We are dependent creatures whose only hope is in our Creator. As we approach the summer solstice and now look back on it, our earth circling around the blazing mass of glory, we can't help but think about how fragile our life on this planet is. Just the right tilt of the axis, just the right distance, just the right length of orbit, all sustained by the one who first set it in motion and maintains it in a continual act of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And as we look to our right and our left, as we look back and look ahead to the challenges we face in this country at this time in history, in the very place and the very time that God has ordained that we should serve him, let's remember that he is ultimately the most high, all-powerful, good Lord. And to him are the praises, the glory, and the honor, and all blessing uh, belong, that we can, while recognizing the challenges of our day, uh, try to contribute what we are called to give, we can at the same time recognize that we are utterly dependent on him. We can approach his throne of grace without hesitation and cry out to him for an awakening, for a revival, for peace in our land, and trust that he is the sovereign Lord, regardless of what the G7 says, regardless of what the United Nations says, regardless of what Congress does or doesn't do, Regardless of what the Supreme Court has decreed, what the president has said, what the legislature has decided, it is in him we put our trust, our confidence, and our hope. He will not fail us. We can trust in him. 
But we are out of time. I do want to uh, thank James Blinn for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us tomorrow as we'll take a look at headline news, but we'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news on the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.